Once upon a time, in a faraway land, I woke up and realized I am going to be a dentist. Said like no one ever. These are the real stories, not fairy tales, as we go behind the smiles. This is a podcast where we interview and chat with some of the biggest leaders in dentistry, learn their stories, and share their motivation with your host, Dr. Gina Dorfman. Today's podcast is brought to you by Yappy, an automated paperless software for dentists and their teams. Learn more at yappyapp.com. This podcast episode is a special two-part feature. You're currently listening to Part 1, Operating and Managing Multiple Practices, with your host, Dr. Gina Dorfman, and special guest speaker, Dr. Jason Tanuri. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smiles. I am here today with Dr. Jason Tanuri. Uh, Jason graduated from the University of Pennsylvania School of Dental Medicine and completed his residency at the Eastman Dental Center in Rochester. Jason owns multiple practices in Finger Lakes, New York. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you for finding some time to um, spend with us today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to, to talk for a few minutes with you. Well, you know what? I am really excited to talk to you today because I remember you from uh, Dental Town. Uh, you, were, um, you, you went by JTR Moeller, right? I did. That was my handle, JRT Moeller, back in the day, yeah. And, and I've always enjoyed your post, and, and I'm really excited that I found you again now on Dental Success Network. You bring tons of value to Dental Success Network. You share so much helpful information. And, and, and you know, I just want to thank you for sharing and, and uh, being such a valuable asset. I really appreciate you saying that. It's my pleasure. So um, I understand you uh, currently have several practices and you are working on building a few more practices. And, um, you know, that's something that I want to talk about because there's a lot of um, interest uh, from um, a lot of dentists to learn more about, you know, adding additional offices or maybe bringing associates. And I know that this is, this is really your area of expertise. Um, but I guess the first question is, how did you end up with multiple practices? Was it always a part of a big vision or is it something that just um, accidentally happened? Uh, well, probably accidentally. I, uh, I love building things. I love scaling things. I love trying to figure out problems. And, you know, I was blessed to have a very successful single practice doing, you know, a couple million a year with me and three or four hygienists. Wow. And, um, it was great. I made a lot of money, but it was, it was boring. And uh, I got in a little bit of a rut and I just saw the opportunity cost out there where I could really do something special. And uh, that at the same time combined with uh, a personal uh, vision that I was having to do some work in my community that is really near and dear to my heart and to fund that personal vision uh, I needed a boatload of cash, and one of the ways to do that was to scale my business. So I was kind of killing two birds with one stone, um, feeding my entrepreneurial spirit uh, by doing something challenging, and uh, at the same time, feeding my personal vision with the revenue generated from what I'm hoping to build. This is awesome. So your first practice you opened in 2001, right? Your flagship. Yeah. And then what was, when did you start expanding? 
so we opened in 2001, just like most people, out of one office, or I'm sorry, one operatory, and, and it was me and my wife, and she's answering the phone, and I'm scaling teeth, and uh, it slowly but surely just kind of ballooned on us. Uh, we moved into a five-op office, and then a 12-op office, and we just kept relocating, and the flagship is at its maximum size now. Uh, it's at 17 ops, and then- wow. We saw a need uh, in our area because we were pulling patients from close to 60 minutes away. So we, we found uh, an area that we were pulling the most patients from about a half hour away and uh, planted a five-op office there about three years ago. Uh, it's doing great. And um, we're currently doing the same thing uh, in two different uh, locations uh, this year. My first associate ever, uh, so a phenomenal dentist, uh, someone that was with me for a while. She wanted to stay part of our brand under our umbrella, but wanted to own her own practice. So we opened up her uh, a practice uh, about 25 minutes from us. Uh, she owns it outright, but we have a, a licensing managing type of an agreement where we help each other out. Uh, and we were really able to shorten the learning curve for her to, uh, to get up and running and be very successful uh, much shorter than the typical uh, startup de novo practices are. So that's what's been keeping me busy so far. This is really incredible. Um, one of the, um, I guess, disadvantages of um, owning multiple practices is really trying to, um, you know, keep consistency between the doctors, between the practices, um, and, and really, you know, create an identity, a brand, um, so that patients always create a unique ex um, experience, um, or rather, so that the patients always receive uh, a consistent experience. Um, how do you do this in your practices? Yeah, great question. And uh, nothing keeps me up more at night than the thought that a patient might be getting one level of service out of one hygiene room, out of one office, and a completely different level of service out of a different hygiene room in another office. And my team hears me say this all the time, um, modeling the McDonald's uh, business. Now, McDonald's doesn't serve the best food, but you know what you're getting when you go to McDonald's. You're getting the same predictable product at the same predictable cost. And that's tr truly what I'm trying to deliver in the sense that no matter what patient goes to what office, no matter what doctor they see, what hygienist they see, it's very predictable. Now, our level of predictability needs to be high end. It needs to be superior quality, superior customer service. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to deliver across uh, every provider, across every uh, office. In order to do that, it's a struggle. And we've certainly had some growing pains. Um, we talk about calibration all the time. We have a, a calibration manual that's close to 100 pages that just shows photo after photo, tells story after story about how certain situations are handled. So, you know, we can onboard a new hygienist and they know exactly how we're diagnosing periodontal disease. They know exactly how we're treating ab fraction lesions. They know exactly our stance on fluoride. Um, so across the board, the patients in theory are hearing the same message each and every time. Same thing goes true from a, even from a case presentation perspective. We're trying to use the same exact language um, coming out of the provider's mouth on uh, level of importance and level of need and can you wait on this or can you not wait on this? Uh, and we're not nearly where we need to be, but we're much further along than we were, say, a year ago. How long did it take you to create these materials? 
uh, they're fluid, they're ongoing. Um, but uh, to get to the point where we're at now, I started a couple of years ago. So I would say we're probably 80% of where I want to be. And that's happened over the last couple of years, but it's certainly not me only. It's, you know, there's a number of docs on DSM that help me contribute to these documents. I have a leadership team uh, in my organization that um, is just an amazing group of individuals that continue to help me um, kind of get this calibration up and running. Uh, so it's, it's a group effort, no doubt. You know, I, the reason why I love uh, you hear, um, hearing you say this so much is because my office is, or my story is kind of similar. I actually ended up selling my second practice um, because I got involved with, but prior to that, I, uh, so I had, I started in 2002 with my flagship office and, you know, we expanded and then we expanded again and I brought in associates and at some point I just, I, there was no nowhere to grow and so we started the second location and I had a contract uh, ready to sign for my third location when I decided no I'm not going to buy a third I'm going to sell my second and just focus on the software company because it felt like it was rather unique opportunity there and um, and what I found is that I needed all those um, systems and SOPs and and I, I actually also have like a calibration manual where I describe exactly how um, I would treat each situation and I give it to a potential associate when I interview them and I say okay this is you know I want you to have your autonomy but this is how I do things and if this doesn't work for you then don't accept the position. Right. And, right. I, and I love that you have the same thing in your practice. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned. You mentioned your leadership team. Uh, describe your leadership team. Uh, so we have uh, team leads. Uh, so there's a team lead for the assistants, uh, for the hygienists, for the front desk. And then we follow the EOS system, which is based out of traction. I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of that. Um, we're it's on a great the, book. Yeah, I love it. And it, it's when I read it a couple of years ago, it was that aha moment um, where I had been trying to put together something similar and just had been failing miserably. Uh, and then when I read Gina Wickman's book, I'm like, okay, this is what I need to do. I need to like not try to reinvent the wheel. I need to copy this system and just you do everything that this book's telling me to do. Um, so that's how it ultimately came to fruition. We have, uh, we have team leads for hygienists, assistants, front desk, uh, visionary, which I'm the, the designated visionary. I have an integrator, my, integrators amy and she's my she's my uh, everyone has one of everyone has an amy where you know i throw her 20 ideas she'll laugh at 19 of them and she'll say <laughs> okay this one idea is pretty good i can run with this and she'll <laughs> make it come to fruition um and then i have a, a back office you know H, uh, hr cfo um type person and then a team lead for my docs so we meet once a week, like Traction says, and we follow their weekly meeting agenda and, you know, stuff gets done. So stuff doesn't get swept under the rug. Uh, people are heard. They feel like there's a, a line of communication to the leadership team and we, we handle issues. And um, it's, been, it's been a blessing for us. What we're learning um, is the leadership team is probably going to have to expand to be more of an organizational leadership team. Right now, it's really just a leadership team for the flagship because um, we have 40 employees there and it's, there's a lot of, lot of bells and whistles there. But um, we're continually trying to figure it out and learn and stuff like that. So 
this, this next year is going to be interesting in the sense with two more practices coming on board. One of our goals for the year is centralized call center, centralized billing, uh, centralized insurance verification. So in, in theory, the thought process is it will create a lot less headaches than what we have now, but uh, I'll let you know in a year if that's true. <laughs> Let's schedule another one in a year and you'll, you'll share that experience. So what are some of the unique challenges that um, uh, you, know, you face with multiple locations besides the difficulty in color baiting? So communication, um, that, that's been a big issue. Um, it's, it's easy to sit at a leadership team meeting and make a decision. Um, what I'm finding that's difficult is getting that information uh, down down through the right channels. And mm-hmm. um, I know it can be done because there's companies that are, you know, 5,000 people where it somehow gets communicated down and I'm, I'm only at uh, 50. So uh, I just have to, I have to be better about communicating. I, I'm, that's such a struggle for me. And I realize that I, for whatever reason, I think that the thoughts inside my head, which are crystal clear to me, are somehow through osmosis getting to the rest of my team. And turns out it's not true. It turns out the thoughts that I have lying in bed of how to perfect, how to perfect the system, um, that's not somehow being communicated uh, to the rest of the team. So. Um, so I, that was, that's one of my, my personal vision goals for 2019 is to uh, really have an increased sense of clarity amongst the, the people in my organization and, and almost over-communicate to a fault where there's no doubt at what I'm trying to say. There's really no room left for interpretation, um, and not in an authoritative type of way, but really in a way where someone comes to me and they want to know the answer, and I just need to be crystal clear with answering their questions. So there's they don't walk away being like, "Well, did he mean this or did he mean that?" And that's the that's how I've always been by default. So I just have to. It's a it's a, one of the many faults I have. I, I have to figure out how to do do that better. Yeah, very true. I, I think clarity is one of the cr- critical parts. Creating clarity is one of the critical parts of leadership. And um, I know on my own team, um, we, you know, we have SOPs, we have meetings, everyone knows what they're doing, uh, but it's also very valuable. And, and my office manager makes sure that I do this regularly is when I, I'm in front of my team and I'm actually speaking my mind. I'm, I'm kind of doing a mind dump and, and, you know, so that they know what I see in my head, what, what my vision is. Right. And uh, yeah, it's very important. So how do you, how often do you meet with your team and how do you share your time between um, the practices? Uh, so we meet quarterly as a team where we'll shut down the offices and I get everybody from all the offices in a room. And we, we t- talk it out for two and a half, three hours. And uh, at, at those meetings, um, go over the, the vision again, the core values, kind of keep everyone up to date on any changes that we're making, tweaks that we're doing, stuff like that. Um, we use Slack. It's been huge for us in terms of inter-office communication, inter- and intra-office communication. So that's been a really good way for us to communicate as well. Um, but in theory, I'm really trying to work myself out of a job and to make, I'm totally the bottleneck. Molly talks about this all the time, 
but I am so the bottleneck of my, my practice, my business. I'm trying to figure out a way to work myself out of a job and um, make people much, much less dependent on me so I can do really only the things that I can do. And uh, my skill set um, outside of like trying to figure out things is mentoring associate doctors. And there's really no one else in the organization that can do it uh, at the level that I can do it, at least not yet. So I, I would like to continue to spend time doing that and even spend more time doing that and just make them better, um, make them better producers, case acceptance higher, teach them how to communicate with patients. Cause I do feel that that's a skill set that I'm fairly good at. Um, so that's kind of what some of the goals that I have over the next uh, couple of months, next year, um, taking myself out of roles that are, where I'm not needed and, and putting myself in roles where I'm the only person that could really do it. That's excellent. Um, let's talk about associates. How do you find good associates? Or how, how do you onboard them? Um, good questions. Uh, Early in the process, we created documents and, and emails and headhunter. We had we did everything right, um, and uh, it was very hit or miss. Sometimes we would have three or four reaching out. Sometimes we would have none reaching out. Um, we're at a point now. We have seven docs, and we're blessed to have three or four continually in the pipeline. And I don't know because upstate New York is a small area, um, but via word of mouth we're developing a reputation of a, a good place to work if you want to, to, to be a doc. So we kind of always have two, three, four in the pipeline. Um, that I continue to maintain that relationship with kind of after hours or on the weekends or what have you. Um, so that's how we do that. In terms of onboarding them, that's a great question because um, I've tried it five or six different ways. Uh, some have been successful, some have failed miserably. Um, one of my rocks for this quarter is to really refine that system of the whole onboarding process. Um, we, we do like, just like all the other positions, we have, um, the calibration document, we have clear job expectations and job duties. We have checklists all for the associate doctors in an effort to increase this clarity that we're talking about. So, so it's crystal, crystal clear what their expectations are. And I only know from hardship and heartache um, with associates in the past where I would get frustrated with them because they didn't do it a certain way. But then in reflection, I'm like, well, I never told them that I wanted it done that way. So <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it, I mean, you, you kind of, you take a step back and you look at it and you're like, why would you think she would do it that way if you never told her to <laughs> win, right? So it's just, I don't know. But again, we're better now than we were a year ago, and we'll be way better in a year. So, Absolutely. I was talking to uh, Dave Maloli yesterday, and we were talking about this, you know, idea that we are really responsible for everything that happens, which is, you know, which comes from extreme ownership. But, you know, in reality, every single time my employee or my associate does something um, that's not the way that I would have done it, it's my responsibility. I am the one who either created the mess or I'm the one who did not provide sufficient training, didn't give the resources, didn't create that clarity. And, um, and one of the things we we're actually uh, talking about is that when you realize that it's very liberating because you no longer feel like a victim, right? That's so true. And then, so I'll take it one step further. Whereas I, 
let's say over the last year or two, I would walk by the uh, an associate presenting treatment and doing it in a way where I was losing my mind. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're not talking to a patient like that. And again, they, they you don't know what you don't know, right? So they're they're saying maybe how they were taught in dental school or, or what have you, or how they truly, I mean, they're not trying to be vicious. This is just, right. this is what they know, right? So shame on me for not setting that expectation, but then shame on me for a whole nother level because instead of having a one-on-one conversation at that moment, like as soon as they got out of the hallway and just rectifying it, I would let it stew and I would let it harbor. And I'm like, I'm drafting up this two page email and I'm like, <laughs> what am I doing? Like, I should have just said, you know, Dr. So-and-so, can I talk to you for a minute and pull me to the side and be like, you're awesome. And I love everything about you. That's why you here. what, why you're here. But I would maybe use this language when presenting it, this treatment, or I would maybe find out exactly what the patient wants or why they're here before you just start rattling off. They need four MO, three DO, you know, just let's, let's get an understanding about why they're here and what they really want before we get into that mode. Um, But I didn't used to do that. I used to just kind of fester on it and be pissed that they wouldn't do it like I would do it instead of having that one uncomfortable conversation, which would ultimately lead to just synergy from that moment forward. And uh, right. I'm, I'm learning that lesson too. So, Yeah. Yeah. Lots of good lessons. Um, it, I wanted to ask you about um, the clinical quality. How do you know, if obviously you can hear conversations and, but do you have some kind of a system in place for verifying the quality? And I saw you post something about, uh, you know, fixing failures. Failures happen, you know, uh, every, the best docs sometimes do things that don't work out. So how do you keep on top of the quality and, and, and how do you uh, handle the failures? Uh, yeah, so we have, um, we have, like, we call it a failed dentistry SOP. Uh, basically, just an expectation of how long dentistry should last. Obviously, there's tons of variables associated with that but just so everyone has an understanding about how long certain things should last. But more importantly, when they don't last that long, how is it handled? Um, so that's really been helpful, especially with multiple doctors. So, you know, if I did bonding on, um, if I did four DO filling and for whatever reason, six months later it fell out and they're in another associate's chair for an emergency, that associate needs to know they have the autonomy to get that patient now, fix that filling right away. Um, they need to be have the autonomy to tell the patient there'll be no charge for this. We stand behind our work. And then they need to know that they're going to get compensated for it. So that that production would be taken off my line item and then go to that associate. So there's just a lot of a lot of um, clarity now in that regards, as opposed to that emergency patient sees the associate, the associate reschedules them with me, and it's just a just such a waste of time. But to answer your original question, um, again, it's probably 80% there. Uh, but for the first three months, we do have some protocols, post-op bite wings for fillings, post-op bite wings for, for crowns. Um, I usually try to spend a lot of time um, with new hires just, just on a daily basis, watching their, looking at their impressions and, and stuff like that. It's certainly not foolproof. And I need to I need to refine it even more as I find myself not being able to be in multiple places at one time. Um, but the other part of it is the assistants know best, right? So the assistants I have so much equity in the in the business, and so so they're just so passionate about it that if they see something that's not 
not going well, they, they know they can come to me and they come to me with regularity and uh, it happens a lot. I mean, with, with new docs. Um, and again, it's not the new doc trying to cut corners or, or trying to manipulate the situation. It's just, you know, again, you don't know what you don't know. So a, a great example is, uh, you know, our last doc that we onboarded was given injections that were a little uncomfortable and the assistants were cringing. And after a couple of days, they came to me, they're like, look, you got to talk to so-and-so like, he does not know how to give a comfortable injection. Well, it turns out he just, it was my own fault for not communicating to him the whole process that we follow in terms of the, 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 you know, pharmaceutically derived uh, topical anesthetic. We use sit and S plane first. And then we, use, so when, when I gave them that protocol, they're like, Oh my gosh, like I didn't know that. I just thought injections were painful. Right. So right. You no, know, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, it, if he was working by himself or in an isolated situation he would never know and and patients patients would just leave being like wow that injection really hurt but the assistants nipped it in the bud they came to me we we fixed the the situation and, and now it'll never be an issue so a lot of those types of checks and balances this is awesome that the um, associates have the advantage of that mentorship. I remember graduating from dental school, and I know you you went to um, a, like a, a residency program, right? I did not. I went straight to work, and I did not know anything, or at least like that realization on the first day, like I – I don't know how to do dentistry. And thank God I found Dental Town because that's where I learned everything pretty much. Right. You know, and, right. and um, that's, so true. that's so true. I mean, it's, and it's not just the, and from my opinion, because I have a lot of young associates, I mean, the dentistry is one thing, but it's, it's the ability to communicate to other adults that, that they really, really struggle with. Like I have my team lead for, for associates is a phenomenal dentist. And one of the reasons I think she's so good is because she was in pharmaceutical sales for five years before she decided to go back to dental school. So she figured yes. out how to talk to people. And it's a completely different, it's a game changer when you can walk into a room and you're established enough where you can have a conversation with someone versus some of these new docs that are like stuttering over themselves. And, you know, they're, they're afraid to present any treatment because they don't want to be, um, they don't want to be said no to. And, and these are all things that you and I kind of had to learn as we, as we went. And I'm just trying to shorten the learning curve. And um, that's what I really, really enjoy doing is, is shortening that learning curve for, for the new docs and, and helping them. I, I want them videoing their case presentations. I want them watching videos of my case presentations, watching them together. What could we have done differently? What could we, you know, if this was great. I would continue to do this. And it's just a learning process. And we just get better and better every time. <laughs> 